You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading will be taken from 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 to 13. Uh, I'll be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor-bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor-bearer and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. When the residents of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterwards, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. You know, um, that day when Saul died on Mount Gilboa, a, a gospel message that I'll call the Philistine gospel, it spread out from that mountain, went to all the nearby villages and started to have an impact. Saul had fallen on his sword, and the death of a king often prompts an official gospel-like message. You can think of the parallel, of course, with a gospel message that flowed from a different mountain, not Mount Gilboa, but Mount Calvary, Golgotha, where the king of kings died, not trying to avoid torture, but willingly, voluntarily giving his life um, in a very torturous death 
obeying his father to the very end so that he could cry out, it is finished. So there's these two different gospels in contrast. And um, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. Gracious God, our Father, we uh, thank you for your holy word. We pray that your spirit would uh, not only drive away distractions, but would take this word and uh, change our lives by it, grow us with it, Lord. Uh, Bless us deeply and forever by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes we seem to be making uh, not just inadequate progress in life, but zero progress. Uh, Have you ever been off-road and you got your vehicle stuck in the mud and you thought, no worries, I'll just give it more gas and you start spinning the wheels, you get deeper and deeper You try to wedge pieces of wood under the tires, but you're just trapped in a real deep rut, only making matters worse. Or, more seriously in life, you're making no progress when you realize you pull off from the shelf your old journal from 10 years ago. You had written your deepest secrets in there. And now you're reading it 10 years later, and you're just humbled and worried by the fact that all the sins that you were struggling with 10 years ago, you're still dealing with them now. And you might wonder, is any progress being made? Looks like zero progress in life. You might think of your job or your marriage or even the growth of your church, and you might start wondering, is it worth it? It seems that everything is just cyclical, going nowhere, no progress. Maybe there's something in the universe that's resistant to positive change. I'm asking this question about progress in life because First Samuel, as a book in the Bible, it ends on a rather depressing note. Saul, the king, is dead, and Samuel, the prophet, he had invested so much of his life in discipling Saul, and yet Saul shipwrecked his life. We know that David, better king, is waiting in the wings. He's warming up for his turn on the throne, but we even have a few legitimate worries about David, will he be any better, really, than Saul? The cyclical repetition of your own sin in your own life, the cyclical repetition of humans behaving rather badly against each other in rather ugly ways, all of this flies in the the face of what we call Biblical eschatology, this teaching that there is actually hope that God is making all things new through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. But the way 1 Samuel ends, 
doesn't give us much hope that there will be this all things new happy ending. At the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are happy. Uh, They wanted uncontested rule over Israel's people and over Israel's land. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, the great creator, redeemer, the great I am, he stood in their way. But on that day, on Mount Gilboa, the Philistines defeated Yahweh's chosen king, Saul. And you know, there's one way to tell whose God is the real ultimate God, who is really in charge. There's one way to tell. You look at how the king who serves that God, look at how that king is doing. If the king is successful, then we might have to pay attention to his God. But if we manage to kill a king and stamp out all of his descendants, then his God is pretty much exposed as a loser. And that's why the Philistines were so happy that day. They can now take over every Israelite village that they wish to have. And they sent messengers, evangelists, to spread, to proclaim the good news, the gospel, the Philistine gospel, that Israel's creator, redeemer God, is not going to ride in and save you. Uh Uh-uh. We are in charge. We have killed your tall, handsome king. Doesn't look so handsome now with his head cut off. Our idols of pleasure and violence and power and success, they have kicked your so-called God out of the atmosphere. Sorry to tell you, happy to proclaim our own success. So what is a gospel? It's an announcement of good news. Something objective has happened in the real world that will transform your life. The gospel is a message officially proclaimed. It tells everyone who is or someday will be under the authority of the new king what blessings and privileges and benefits they will enjoy under his administration. The Philistine gospel that was spreading from Mount Gilboa down to the hinterlands That gospel was this. Our gods have defeated your Yahweh. And here is the incontestable proof. Four dead bodies. Now, Christians, they understand that the absence of their king's corpse proves his victory. The Philistines... They believed that the presence of four dead, dismembered bodies proved their superiority. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, you remember, it was the Philistine gospel that caused the death of Israel's high priest, Eli. Old Eli, you kind of feel for Eli sitting in his rocking chair, 
waiting for news about the war with the Philistines. And then he hears the news. A runner brought the news to him. It wasn't a gospel, really. Well, it was the Philistine gospel. The Philistines had won the battle. The Philistines had killed Eli's sons. And the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Eli takes it all in and kills over dead. Some gospels bring life. Some bring death. Imagine a 16-year-old growing up in church, assuming that his dad is a godly man, and one day he discovers that his dad is basically a hypocrite. And now the kid is running through the halls of his high school, disabused of his naive worldview, and is thinking, everything that I thought was true is false. What is he supposed to think? What is Israel supposed to think now that everything that they thought was true is proving false? King Saul, the anointed one, the Lord's anointed, fallen on Mount Gilboa and his three sons with them. King Saul is dead. Faithful, brave Prince Jonathan is dead. The Philistines are indisputably in charge. What will our life be like now? The Philistine gospel is getting under our skin. You know, today a lot of people, and I hear this on both the right side of the political spectrum and the left side, a lot of people are tempted to believe a a political gospel. Our party has smashed your party in the recent election. All of your leaders are basically exposed as pathetic losers. We're on the right side of history. You're not. So it's a good thing we're in charge because better times are on the way. I mean, this is just kind of the normal thing that people, they take a rivalry, they ultimatize it, and it becomes what they are trusting in. Thankfully, there is a gospel that is not about posturing and virtue signaling. There is a gospel concerning King Jesus. And Jesus is not a fictional king. By resisting every sin, by dying in our place, by rising from the dead, Jesus made it so that sin no longer has any authority over you, no claim on your life. It has no right to have a death grip on your heart. Jesus flat out gives you eternal life, not based on any positioning that you might do, not based on any worthiness that you would attain, but based totally on him, proven by his resurrection, his victory over death. It takes the gift of faith from the Holy Spirit to believe that Jesus' gospel, especially when the world is pushing various forms of the Philistine gospel. So I want us to understand three things this morning about the Philistine gospel. One thing that it produces 
two things that undermine it. First, the Philistine gospel produces hopelessness by celebrating the death of the Lord's anointed. That's who Saul was. He was the Lord's anointed, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. And as the Philistine evangelists were running throughout the land, taking the news of the Mount Gilboa victory with them, spreading the word that all you had to do is go to one of these Philistine idol shrines and you too could see a piece of King Saul, a piece of his armor. That message was designed to produce hopelessness in the hearts of every Israelite. Resistance is futile. Your king is dead. He has fallen. He is pierced. He is stripped. He is shamed. First Samuel, you remember, began with the wonderful story of Hannah, a woman who thought that she was a failure because she was childless. She earnestly prayed to the Lord. He gave her little Samuel. Hannah ends up singing this beautiful song of praise to Yahweh, saying that he, the great I am, he is the one who brings down the proud and raises up the lowly. So God gives to Hannah little Samuel. He grows up and is given the unenviable task by God of telling Eli, the high priest, that his high and mighty family, the house of Eli, is coming down. The Lord is going to bring that house down under his judgment for their heinous and unrepentant sin. That was the unenviable message Samuel had to deliver as a young prophet. But thankfully, another king was warming up, right? David is getting ready to be king. We're happy about that, truly. But the first readers of First and Second Samuel, they would have been wondering, is David really going to be all that much of an improvement over Saul? Will God keep his promise to save the world through the house of David? The Philistine gospel was designed to suck out all the hope from Israel. Just like the Philistines triumphed over the house of Eli a generation ago, so they had now triumphed over the house of Saul. Back in chapter 4 of this book, that was the day when the priesthood died. Overweight Eli collapsed when he heard the Philistine gospel. Here in chapter 31 is the day that the monarchy died. Extra tall Saul collapses on his own sword when he sees the Philistines closing in. The priesthood fell, the monarchy fell before the Philistines. Israel would be wondering, will our nation also fall? 
All we've got to show for being God's chosen people is a bunch of words. His covenant words, his covenant promises that he is going to use us somehow to bless every nation, every family of the world. If our salvation, if our present prospect of enjoying peace depends upon our king and he has just died on Mount Gilboa, then it looks like our gospel has died. Philistine gospel is designed to snuff out any hope from your heart. Can you pinpoint the day when you became cynical about the future? Or did it just kind of creep up on you gradual-like? When did you resign yourself to living in a stupid, pointless world? Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel? They were deconstructing, walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from their faith. And they're walking along with this third man, stranger to their eyes. And they're talking with him. They don't recognize him. He happens to be Jesus, who has just risen from the dead. They don't know that yet. The Philistine gospel, the Roman version of it, has taken charge in their heart and in their brain. And they speak to their traveling companion, the third guy, this way. They say, Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Well, hope was walking beside them right then. Hope was staring them in the face, right? But the Philistine gospel had glazed over and blinded their eyes. Imagine you are there on Mount Gilboa with Saul as the Philistine archers are closing in. Prince Abinadab is struck down dead. Let's say you are the assistant to the armor bearer. Malkishua is the next to fall. But you still have hope because brave Prince Jonathan is still standing tall. Jonathan, who selflessly gave up his right to the throne, who by faith in Yahweh embraced David as the Lord's anointed king. He's still there, Jonathan, our hero. Dale Ralph Davis, writing about 1 Samuel, says, Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose. I love that. Jonathan died, loyal, not only to his father, but loyal to David, the Lord's anointed one. But there on Mount Gilboa, as you watch with your own eyes, all you see 
is that the unthinkable has just happened. Faithful Jonathan has also been struck down dead. And now your king is asking the armor bearer to draw his sword and kill his king in order to escape torture. The irony does not escape you. Saul, trying to escape torture, embraces shame. For to fall at the hand of your armor bearer is not exactly a valiant way to die. But thankfully, the armor bearer is terrified. What is that fear that the armor bearer has? Could it be the fear of the Lord? Could it be that that armor bearer, like David, was not going to touch or harm the Lord's anointed? If there was one thing he was not going to do, he was not going to kill the anointed king. He fears God. As you watch, your king makes another really bad decision. Rather than going down, trusting that somehow Yahweh will win in the end, Saul and his armor bearer succumb to the Philistine message. That the Philistines are winning, and there's nothing you can do but make your own demise a little better than it could be. What Saul is doing here at the end is he's just managing. Going to manage a bad situation. Make it a little better. As painless as possible. What a way to live. What a way to die. Israel scatters like sheep without a shepherd, for their shepherd has fallen, and he's not going to get back up. Philistine gospel leaves you hopeless. But thankfully, we see two things here in chapter 31 that subvert the Philistine gospel. The first thing, admittedly, doesn't look like much, okay? But here it is. Burial. To bury a human body is to make a statement that this hunk of flesh is not just a bag of chemicals. This is a human being bearing the image of God. That even when the spirit is no longer in the body, any and every human still has this God-given dignity attached to his or her remains. So to bury a human is an act of respect for the image of God. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, they rise to the occasion. Where, where were these guys back at the battle time, right? But at any rate, they rise to the occasion, and at the risk of their own lives, they retrieve the remains of Saul and his sons. What a gory task to remove the dead bodies from the Philistine wall. Think of Nicodemus. Think of Joseph of Arimathea and the women respectfully removing the body of Jesus from the cross and wrapping it in linen 
and 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Think of any time you have stood at the graveside, grieving the death, the loss of someone close to you. Burial is an act of respect for the image of God, and it is an act of faith in the coming resurrection. By faith, you bury the bones, believing that when Jesus returns, he will do what he did for Lazarus. He will command someone who doesn't even have ears that hear anymore to stand up, to rise up, to walk out, to breathe. Jonathan will rise up. He will breathe. He will look in the face of the anointed king, King Jesus. And with his own resurrected eyes, Jonathan will see the king of glory. A burial is not merely a connection to the past. It is a statement of faith in the eternal future. Secondly, the Philistine gospel is undermined and subverted by prayer and fasting. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, they fasted for seven days. It was a way of paying their dues, of respect, honoring King Saul. It was a way of lamenting. Now, usually in the Bible, when people fast, they also pray. I, I honestly do not know about the men of Jabesh-Gilead, if they were devout and were praying while fasting, it's possible that they were only doing the outward ritual. Some people use religion that way, you know. So they might just be doing the fast out of tradition and not taking the opportunity to speak to the Lord from their heart. Perhaps they did not pray. Perhaps they did not trust that the one who created us out of the dust will yet someday raise us from the dust. But we do know this about the men of Jabesh-Gilead. They risked their lives for a dead king. And you and I have the daily privilege of praying not to a dead king, but to a resurrected king. Every time you pray in the name of King Jesus, you pray and sometimes fast in order to draw near to the living God. You are participating in an act of defiance against all forms of the Philistine gospel. At the end of 1 Samuel 31, the news on the ground is not good. All we've got are some bones buried underneath the tamarisk tree. King Saul is dead. Where is our hope? 1 Samuel ends the way the four Gospels almost end, with a burial. Imagine, what if the story of Jesus 
ended like the story of King Saul. Be reading along in the Gospel of John, get to the last page, last paragraph, and it says something like, and they buried the body of Jesus in the tomb. Close the book. End of story. What would we have? Memories, nostalgia, sentimentality, his example, his ideas. But the main point about Jesus was never just his example. The main point was him, his living presence with us. The Philistine gospel might be slightly subverted by an act of courage, by a faith-filled burial, by prayer and fasting, but ultimately the only thing that undermines the false victory of the world is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate son of David, truly descended from David's line, Jesus is also the eternally begotten son of God the Father. Now, if you are even just a little curious about Christians and whether what they believe about Jesus is true or not, I would encourage you to do some research on this subject of the resurrection of Jesus. Is there any good reason to believe the key claim that Christians have been making for the last 2,000 years that Jesus, this Jesus who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, that he actually physically rose from the dead? Did he or did he not rise? I would look into that because everything really depends on that question. Find out if there are good reasons to believe it or not. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our story would end as pathetically as King Saul's story ends. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, your sins are forgiven, you are adopted into God's family, And God truly is making all things new. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would uh, give us the hope that has been leaking out of us every moment, every day. Restore to us joy in Christ, we pray. Um, Plant that seed of faith in us, uh, work it out practically in our relationships. Lord, help us to uh, find our voice again and begin praying to you again. Please change us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.